Long treated as the last chance saloon among Grand Tour watering holes, a place for parched teams and riders to redeem and replenish themselves before the season's end, La Vuelta a España has in recent years staked to claim as cycling's quirkiest, most dynamic expression of long-form racing. For wine lovers, Spain has come to represent the same spirit of innovation and disruption. Listeners who bought and enjoyed the Vuelta a España selection we put together with Divine Sellers in 2021 will know this, and the 2022 race provides us with a further opportunity to re-emphasize the point. La Serpiente Multicolor, the multicolored snake, as Spanish journalists still bafflingly call the peloton, will slither down to the Basque Country on Monday after our Gran Salida and three days in the Netherlands. From there, the challenge for our resident throat charmers Greg Andrews and Angus McNabb of Divine was to come up with six bottles within whimsical detouring distance of the route to showcase exactly why they, and many others, consider Spain the most exciting wine-producing country in Europe. A week before the race start in Utrecht, I travelled to Divine Cellars HQ in Southland to see how they'd got on. Incidentally, to order the case itself, head to www divinesellers.com that's D, the letter D Vine, V-I-N-E sellers.com the names of the wines are in the show notes and please, please drink responsibly and in moderation A winemaker's case inspired by winemakers that have or are changing the wine landscape in Spain, either resurrecting forgotten varieties, regions, wine styles, or simply throwing away the protocol and making delicious wines. Well, it's that time of the cycling season again, the third Grand Tour of the season on the horizon, the Vuelta a España, and I'm here with our old friend Greg Andrews of Divine Cellars, and also... Uh, his Spanish expert in residence, also not your first time on the podcast, Angus McNabb, the, the, the Spaniard in the kilt, the Spaniard with the Scottish names. And Angus, what we heard there, what well, was your intro really, for what we've got in store for the Vuelta a España. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to be back, Daniel. Um, yeah, the route is not necessarily going past the general wine country in Spain so we had to look at different areas like uh, Sanlúcar in Jerez like Alicante or like the Basque country but uh, certainly areas where we're starting to see a lot more great quality wines coming back and and um, historic vineyards being uh, revived so it's really really exciting and chaps before we get on to the route and onto the case it's uh well it's it's been a long torrid summer already and before we did start recording today we were talking about well i was maligning and um, when you well, when you told me how much rosé you're selling and i was i'm still reeling at the the, the fact that or you told me that you're selling over 50 percent of your wine is rosé at the moment but just on the wine industry and particularly in spain maybe focusing on spain how are things looking, Angus, in terms of um, well, what's going to be produced this year? So things are looking really good. I think Spain is uh, going through a really strong new wave of winemakers, forgotten vineyards, forgotten grape varieties. People are looking for cool areas, uh, for more freshness in the wine, a bit less oak, a bit less obvious wine. So it is a really sweet spot in Europe at the moment to look into wines and staying away from the classic regions. There's a lot to offer, and in the next 10, 15 years, I think Spain's going to really explode. I think more than any other country in Europe, 
the Spanish, the new generation of Spanish winemakers have ripped up the rule book, thrown it away, and are actually approaching things. That, they're producing wines that they want to drink. They're not producing wines that they feel tradition is guiding them to do so. They're just doing so when they have good fruit, they want to make a good wine that's refreshing and gets people to have another glass. And before we do go on, Greg, there's no rosé in this case. No, no um, rosé. Well, I think for years it's we've always been bemused in some respects you know by how many by how little red gets drunk in the summer uh, people seem to forget that you can actually chill a bottle of red and enjoy it around the barbecue and it just becomes a little more refreshing than it would be otherwise um, but also just rosé itself in terms of it I think it it really has captured the you know I suppose the UK consumer market you know a lot of the consumers want something dry refreshing and cold but as Angus and I have, and Luciana, we've, we try all summer long, we try and convince people that there is more outside of Provence, you know, in terms of there's some fabulous rosé from Italy, Spain, and even further afield where you get so much, so much value. And I think our, one of our favourite rosés is from, is from Greece, for example. So still delivering something dry, something sort of mineral, but it just gives you a different dimension. And of course, pink is the colour of the Giro d'Italia and red is the colour of the, well, certainly the leader's jersey at the Vuelta Espana. So we should really, and we will start with a red wine. And it's also the most classic of red wines. Um, it's uh, Rioja. And Angus, I think we've discussed this before, but if there's one thing that I would malign about certainly the way um, Spanish wine is sold in the UK, in my experience, it's been that when you go into, when you've gone into an off-licence traditionally, um, 80% of the wine of the Spanish wine on offer has been Rioja. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a um, the down, the downfall of, of success. You know, a, a lot of vineyards, a lot of people producing high-volume grapes to be sold at less than a euro a kilo, um, producing mass-market wines. Um, things are changing. Uh, Rioja, it's well deserved. Uh, a place in was one of the greatest wine regions in in the world and of course there's cheap Rioja but there's absolutely fascinating Rioja and what people don't realize is that the wines can age for such a long time. So Angus we've got our first wine here and as I said it is a Rioja and well the two things I associate with Rioja are a slightly tawny color and well to smell oak straight away I can certainly smell the oak but the color is quite untypical Rioja. Tell us about this first wine. So we are featuring the special wine that we just shipped from Spain. So we've got a small parcel of uh, 2014 Gran Reserva from Tobia. Um, Oscar makes wines a little bit more on the modern side to your usual Rioja. So what tends to happen in here is they're a little bit less oak aging and looking at different types of oak, such as French oak and Hungarian oak. So the wine is much darker in colour, has greater structure, feels very borderless in style where you smell the wine, it's got a lot of black fruit, a lot of cassis, uh, some mintiness, a little bit of eucalyptus, and then, you know, very savoury aromas such as balsamic, uh, hoisin sauce, soya. Um, so just a different, more concentrated approach to your classic Rioja. It's certainly, I think we, we felt we tasted this wine uh, three months ago with the winemaker. We were so blown away by it that we shipped um, 60 bottles and it's the option B for the case um, the 2016 Reserva it's very similar it's a little bit lighter maybe less structure but still you know good structure good tannins you know good black fruit and very different to your classic Red Rioja 
Yes, there is. We are offering the possibility to sort of supercharge your Vuelta case by going to from the Reserva to the Gran Reserva for it's ten pounds extra, isn't it? Angus. Um, and it will just tell us the difference briefly because I think a lot of people will be familiar with the different classifications in Spanish wine with uh, Roble, then Crianza, then Reserva, then Gran Reserva. If people aren't, when they see those words on bottles, what do they mean? Well, in uh, in Spain, it's a legal requirement when you put Crianza, Reserva, Gran Reserva, and it's to do with aging in both barrel and bottle. The pinnacle of all is Gran Reserva. So for a wine to be called Gran Reserva, it needs to be aged for a minimum of five years, five years from the, from the vintage time, and it needs to be aged for a minimum of two years in oak. In this case, this is 24 months in 60% new oak, 40% second use, and then three years in bottle. Well, I think too often Rioja gets drunk too young. You know, and I think both of these wines have, whilst they're drinking beautifully now, I think they have incredible potential to be able to put away and come back to in five, ten years' time. I, I really do think these are some of the best examples of Rioja in the market right now. You know, there's no, and that's just not me ramping it up and trying to sort of get everyone excited. Um, I mean, I think if we look at the four, four or five Rioja producers we've stocked over the years, whether it be sort of Oscar Tabia, Remaleri, who incidentally was made by Telmo Rodriguez. Uh, and uh, Miguel Moreno and La Rioja Alta. All of those wines, I think the one common vein with them all, they're all, yes, they're a more luxurious style, but equally they will age, not just five, ten years, but even multiple decades. And I think the quali- that's just a sign of the immense quality that comes out of the region, I think. Well, that is stage four, chaps. So immediately when we leave the Netherlands, where we won't be drinking any wine and we won't even be having any passable beer because for some reason and the dutch have neither wine nor decent beer and um, we'll be arriving so in victoria gastites on stage four and the stage goes to la guardia which angus informs me just sneaks inside um the Rioja producing region and the next day we'll be in the basque country we'll be going from irun to um, bilbao and we will be drinking well certainly those who are lucky enough to buy or receive one of our Vuelta cases will be drinking. Well, we've had a very well-known Spanish wine, Rioja, a name that a lot of people will be familiar with. And on the next day, a wine with a very unusual sounding name and a wine that most people will be unfamiliar with, uh, Chacoli from the Basque Country. So Chacoli is a traditional wine from the Basque Country they could make in three different regions, in Biscay, in Guetaria or in Alaba, which is Alaba is the one that we're going to be tasting from now. It's uh, made with a local grape variety called Hondarabi Suri. Um, and it's usually, it was always consumed with pinchos and tapas in Bilbao, San Sebastian, and traditionally served like cider in the north of Spain during the process of escanzamiento, which is lifting the bottle about a meter high, you know, behind your neck. Mm-hmm. And then, as, as we always see, we usually encounter this on the Vuelta in Asturias, when we see the, the cider that's made in places or near places like Oviedo, you get the waiter who comes along, tips the bottle way above his head, um, often spills a fair bit, even even though, you know, they're supposedly quite expert. But you see this also with Chacoli. Yes, yeah, so you used to see this a lot with Chacoli, and uh, probably the reason being is that Chacoli, you know, it's, it's grown in a very marginal area. There isn't an awful lot of fruit on the wine, there's high acid, and a lot of the wines were a little bit underwhelming, and this process of pouring the wine that way aerates the wine and gives the wine a little bit of sparkle and a little bit of life. 
I'm very pleased to say. Does it really, or is it mainly performative? Um, but they used to do it before tourism, so I guess there, there, there might have been a reason. But I'm very pleased to say, in this case, no such a thing is needed to be done. This is an excellent wine. Uh, it's probably the best straight chocolate I tasted today. Um, it's a very new project, started in 2012. Four and a half hectares of organic growing vineyards in the heart of Alaba. So we're looking at 25 kilometers inland, 400 meters above sea level, and they're making a whole array of different and very exciting styles of wine with chacoli, where there's a petna, the barrel fermented, or wine's edge on the floor. In this case, with Somos Uno, is their uh, first cuvée. It's 94% chacoli, 6% Riesling. It's fermented using local wild yeast and then aged in very old oak barrels for about six to nine months just to soften up the wine. Um, it's a wine that has incredible acidity, incredible salinity, and lovely, lovely citrus fruits. And Angus, just before we taste it, you mentioned earlier that it's often drunk with tapas and pinchos. I think people in the UK and other countries now are quite familiar with the concept of pinchos, but if they're not, just tell us the difference between tapas and pinchos. Um, so a pincho, usually it's a piece of food that comes on a skewer or on top of uh, a little crouton of bread. And a tapa tends to be sort of slightly bigger portion served in a plate. So it's very typical uh, part of the culture in the Basque country uh, to go eat and meet with friends. And you'll have a zurrito, which is a very small beer. It's probably a third, not even a fourth of half a pint. Or you have, you know, 75 cl or 100 mils of wine and you have one or two pinches. And off you go. You go to the next bar and to the next bar and to the next bar. And you spend all evening eating and drinking um, I'm having a great time. You know, too often, as you say, I, I've always been accustomed to the grapefruit, the waiter pouring it from a ridiculous height and something being fresh. And then I think for me, this particular wine was a game changer that opened my eyes to say, hang on, there's a hell of a lot more that's possible, you know, using these great varieties and from this region. And I think, you know, we, I mentioned early on about winemakers and producers throwing the rule book away. And I think this is a perfect example of that, you know, where they've said, Let's do something different. And I think you're getting into some serious wine territory when you try it. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. That's two wines down, chaps. On to stage three. Now, before we take on this mammoth transfer on the second rest day, which... um, I'm not too thrilled about, but um, it will certainly take us to a different climate and a different, um, completely different feeling area of Spain. But before we do that, we are going to be treated to one of my favourite Spanish wines, one of my favourite Spanish wine regions, um, Bierzo, which well, it's a red. It's most best well known for its red wine. I think they do produce a bit of white up there as well, yeah. Angus. Um, however, whenever I, I almost have to double check. Um, whenever I taste the Bierzo wine, just where it is on the map, because it's so far north, so far stuck up in the northwest corner of Spain, I'm always amazed at how deep and concentrated the wines are. They taste as though they should come from somewhere a lot more sort of sunny and and Mediterranean feeling, and they're they're not. Those are not adjectives you would associate necessarily with that part of Spain. Sure, I mean it's. Uh... Yeah, it's a little bit confusing to see where Bierzo is. Bierzo is right in the western north part of Castilla y León, bordering with Galicia. A lot of people think it's Galicia, but it's not. Um, and they have, you know, very nice temperate climate coming from the sea, but also they have 
pretty nice and warm day so there is no problem achieving ripeness uh, alcoholic content or wines that have a fair bit of structure I think it's the opposite it's managing the vineyards and managing the harvest in a way that you have wines that still have freshness Bierzo originally 20, 30 years ago the wines were 15% alcohol with a lot of oak and actually quite chewy So Angus the Bierzo made from the Mencia grape tell us a little bit about this wine so Mencia, it's uh, an awesome grape variety. Um, you only find it here and in little pockets uh, in Portugal. It's known as Jaén in Portugal. And Mencia, for me, the way I describe it, it's the European um, equivalent to Malbec. Why? Because it's super aromatic. It's got, um, it's got red flowers, it's got purple flowers, it's got red fruit, it's got black fruit. You know, it jumps out of the glass. You know, it's got everything that you possibly want. And then on the palate, it's nice, it's silky. There's a little bit of tannin, but it's very much on the background. The CAT is fresh. It's just a super generous and just super good to drink. This is a, an example of a, a Spanish wine region that I think is becoming more or better known in places like the UK. How, how easy is it for you guys to sell a Bierzo compared to a Ribera del Duero or a Rioja, something better known, but you know, for which this could be a good alternative? So hard to sell it uh, to someone who wants Rioja, just because the style is so different, but it is easy to sell it to someone who wants Real Duero or the styles. A lot of people are looking for wines that have a lot more freshness, a lot more purity, and I think this fits the bill very, very well. You know, both Mencia and Godello, which is very well present in Bierzo, are wines that have minerality, acidity, they have tension, and have a very elevated fruit component to the wines. It's not necessarily masked by the oak. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. And chaps, for our fourth wine, we're heading down to the Costa Blanca, um, Alicante, and we've certainly featured wines from that region before, um, but this year we've got something different. I don't believe we've had a Monastre from down there, but that's what we've got this time, a Telmo Rodriguez, which I'm pretty excited about because I've... I've heard you refer to this winemaker a few times in, in reverential terms, Angus. And, um, well, tell us what we've got here. So we've got a, uh, a wine made uh, just in the outskirts of Alicante. Uh, the great variety here is Monastrel. Monastrel is also known as Mataró in Australia or Mouvedre in France. It's certainly a, a great variety that came from the Phoenicians. It's very much an Atlantic, sorry, a Mediterranean great variety. Um, Demo Rodriguez, a great guy, again, a bit like Raul, you know, pushing the boundaries. He's been working very hard over the last 25, 30 years trying to revive all vineyards and areas that, you know, are not, were not so well known for wine and grapes, such as, you know, uh, Almuvedre from Alicante or uh, the mountain wine that he makes in Malaga. It was a project that took 15 years before he produced a single bottle. Uh, in here, we got a fairly simple wine, you know, it's an honest wine. Uh, there's a lot of flavor, but it's, you know, very typical uh, Monastrel. So loads of uh, aromas jumping out of the glass. We've got lots of violets, blueberries. And then on the palate, there is nice grippiness to it and a little bit of rusticity. I think it's a really good example of what a Mediterranean wine from a warm climate is. But it has that thermal touch to it, where the wine even with a bit of tannin and a bit of rusticity is still very flawless and very elegant. I remember asking Telmo years ago, because all of his wines were coming out of Rioja or, or, or Malaga, 
I was saying, well, why is... And this was the only wine that he had outside of those regions. And I asked him, I said, look, why, why Alicante? Why eat it? And he said, a friend showed me this fruit and I couldn't resist. You know, it has so much potential. And for, for a producer to be able to produce a wine of this calibre at this price point, I think he's done an amazing job. And I, the other thing is, as Angus started, a lot of, we hinted on earlier, a lot of wines from Alicante are usually, because of the high temperatures, are usually baked, they're usually really jammy, and just not fun to drink. And I think this wine challenges that and gives you something a little bit more you know a little bit more consumable you know something that you want to drink and you want to have a second glass and i think from that region this is probably one of my standout wines that we've had recently i think because they they just tend to be a little bit clunky a little bit over the top so this is another star spanish winemaker that that whose sort of services are obviously very sought after in different regions of spain chaps but um you've obviously hand selected this wine and you know the winemaker you know telmo rodriguez greg you talked about um meeting him a few years ago but people might be curious to know if you start with a blank slate a blank sheet and angus's expertise and and your experience as well in the field how do you go about putting together your Spanish selection and, and deciding how much of your shop is given over to Spanish wines at any given time? I think the number one overriding criteria is value, value for money. And I think for us, when, when we're given various Spanish options, for example, we need, we need to evaluate. We don't just evaluate it on a Spanish scale, we evaluate it across the board. Because as as the cycling podcast listeners know, you know, there's quality in Italy, there's quality in France, and obviously further afield. So for us, it, we need to make sure it holds it holds that value proposition globally, but equally has something unique, something that we want to sell, we want to shout about, and that consumers will want to actually buy another bottle. And, and Greg, our listeners will have heard you in the past, particularly when we've talked about our Giro cases, there are a few properties that you buy from direct but generally speaking you're working with distributors yes so just i see it as very fortunate fact about the uk wine industry given it's historically the uk has been the cross a crossroads in world wine where you know we we have the great privilege of being able to order from most wine producing countries on the planet and being australian i can tell you it is a privilege because you don't always have that same same volume, you know, that same variety that you have in the UK. So, in order to present our customers with a good variety, it makes more commercial sense to work with better quality producers by and spread that out across the whole range, rather than having to invest in in huge, make a huge investment to bring in a huge volume from one particular producer or several producers. And, you know, whereas in this case, we can spread that risk and actually have better quality across the range. That said, if there's something that, that does scream out that is incredible value and that we can get behind and we know we're going to sell a sufficient quantity, like Oscar to beer, like the Cosimo wines we've spoken about in the past, it's it, it really does make sense then to sort of work with the producer directly and, you know, push that, get behind those wines. Well, chaps, for our fifth wine, we're in a place called San Lucar de Barameda, way down in Andalusia. But I say we're down there, but I feel completely lost because 
I don't know, Angus, whether we're drinking a sherry. You're going to have to, I know, I think it's possible to go through your whole adult life drinking wine and to be completely bypassed by sherry because as soon as you hear that, you think of something that was served sort of at dinner parties in the 1970s and you just turn your nose up and never experience it. Is this sherry, Angus? It's not sherry, but it's from the sherry region. It tastes like sherry, but it's not fortified. It's a single vineyard. Palomino Fino from San Luca. San Luca uh, is the area in Jerez that's closest to the sea, so you get a lot of the salinity. And uh, when you drink and smell this wine, you can see the reference to sherry because the wine is um, aged in barrel, obviously very old oak. There is no oak flavor imparting to the wine whatsoever, but it's grown and aged under a layer of floor. Floor is a very thin layer of gist, it lives in the air and then settles on the wine, prevent the wine from losing its color and oxidating. And it gives you this really... Um, and it's very visible. Um, yeah. When people talk about yeast sort of living in wineries after a certain period in certain parts of the world, you, you won't see it. But in this case, it looks like a thick layer of dust. Exactly. It's a it's thick layer of dust. And it's the only place in, in the Sherry region, in the Marco de Jerez, the Triangle, where actually the flow lasts all year, given the humid conditions of the sea and also the mouth of the Guadalquivir River. Um, and this floor gives the wine this, this kind of, sort of very umami-rich flavor. It's very similar to champagne. You have all these kind of sort of toasted brioche, these briny, uh, dough, you know, dough flavors, the yeasty flavors, which makes the wine really savory and, and delicious. I mean, this is a wine that you need to, you know, put your seatbelt and on and get ready for for a journey. But it's a wine that it, it will grow and use, exceptional with food and super interesting. I think more than any other wine that we've had, we've we've got lined up today, is almost ignore that first sip. Just let that prepare the palate for the next time you go in, because you'll just find so much more. As Angus was saying, all those sort of yeasty notes are there, those sort of almost like that calcium-driven, you know, lactic nature that comes with champagne. You're getting it in this particular wine, and I'm just salivating about the foods you would have with this in terms of almonds, salted cod croquettes, anything like that. This kind of really marries up incredibly well, and just. Yeah, straight away it just keeps you salivating and wanting more. I like to also add that in, in a world where natural wines have been championed and minimal intervention, <laughs> let me tell you that uh, Sherry, uh, historic wine region in the world, uh, some of the greatest wines of the world uh, are made here. Um, for hundreds of years, the wines in Sherry have been fermented with wild yeast, have been aged in oak for a long time. They're naturally made, and they speak of the vineyard, you know, uh, particularly in this case where the wine has not been fortified. Um, so when it comes to a wine talking about a place, a soil, and an area, I think you can get much closer than this. You chaps with your selections, you tend to like to challenge, almost provoke. I would say this is a kind of provocative wine. This is a sort of obnoxious guest at a house party that, you know, some people will get on like a house on fire with and other people want to leave the party. I think... I think we we said it earlier. So this is this is the Marmite wine of the selection. We're expecting some people to absolutely love this wine, uh, but we also recognise it may not be everyone's cup of tea. You know, because of that that textual influence it has, and that sort of that that slightly slightly offbeat sort of tang because of that the oxida- oxidative nature. But I think it will also draw in a lot of people. 
while. And I think you know, I almost almost plea with the listeners: give give the wine a chance. Ignore that first sip and definitely have it with some food. You know, I think it's got a lot to offer. I think I think it's a bit like uh, my reference to, for instance, white truffle in other, You know, yeah. where the first time you get. Uh, the, the, the smell of white truffle you go mm, I'm not sure it smells maybe a little bit petroly or a bit smoky and then you eat it and you go oh my god this is really good and then you have more you have more and by the third fourth time you um, you're eating fresh truffle they, you know there's no amount that will satisfy your hunger and I think this is very much the same the equivalent but on wine so Angus we said that this is not sherry this is not um well certainly what most people would think of as sherry the, the fortified wine just spell out for us the difference between this what we are drinking and sherry as maybe most people think of it in its fortified incarnation so the difference between this and the sherry is as you mentioned it's not being fortified so the fortification process is adding natural grape spirit that's 85 to 90 percent proof uh in this case the wine is not fortified so it's it's a 12 and a half percent alcohol um, it's much lighter in style and also it's not aged for as long. Well, chaps, it's a long journey from down there in San Lucar de um, Barameda to well, the outskirts of Madrid, really, the mountains to the west of Madrid and the Sierra de Gredos. And it's a long journey from that sort of briny, salty, kind of almost, again, savoury wine that we have included in our selection from there that we've just tasted to this, which is... Kind of light, almost sweet on the nose, Angus. Very, very different. Last year we had a red from the Sierra de Gredos um, and we've gone for a white this time. Just tell us about this one. So another 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 one from Gredos, you know, second year running. I mean, this this, this area is great. Um, you know, referring to Telmo Rodriguez, before he was the first guy to come into this area and start building the name for it, and Raul as well. Um, in this case, uh, Mark Isad, uh, is a guy from Catalonia, he's been heading the first commercial winery, um, Bernabeleva. And this is a blend of the local grape variety, which is Albillo Real, a little bit of uh, Moscatel, and a little bit of Carnacha Blanca. It's a lovely, lovely wine, super interesting, and it's got so much to offer. Uh, very tropical, as you say, you know, lots of honeydew melon, medlar, you know, just uh, blossom of flowers. And then on the palate, it's got lovely texture. There's a little bit of oak, a little bit of sweet oak, making it, you know, really nice and attractive, you know, great wine to pair with uh, creamy dishes and white meats. But I think this is what Gredos is about. I think the, the special uh, decomposed granite soles give wines although um, a lot of freshness although the wines are quite generous both in alcohol and texture you know there's always a really nice fresh vibe about them and i think um yeah i think this is a, a great white wine i think this is a great example of new wave spain and one of my favorite regions which is gredos and i can see you've recommended drinking it with among other things pumpkin risotto i can definitely see that however i would not recommend ordering pumpkin risotto in spain i would never recommend ordering risotto anywhere but italy um are there any local dishes that this should go through i mean luciana your colleague um at divine sellers she's very much a proponent of eating the local food with the wine from a particular region i mean does that hold here 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Spain has nothing to envy to Italy. I think we are much better dishes. I mean, Italy is there's only risotto. You know, in Spain we have a roscaldoso, we have a rosabanda, we have paella. You know, I mean, so no, in the Sierra de Gredos, you don't. No, no, in the Sierra de Gredos, we don't. We're not, not too far away. So we have um, loads of different types of rice. Uh, they're not arborio, you know, uh, but um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, loads of um, arroz meloso is, is, is one of the dishes that it's like a loose paella. Uh, you know, kind of sort of a little bit sticky. It's a little, it's a little bit um, more loose than a risotto, but it's got that sort of vibe. Um, paella traditionally is always meat, made with hair and game meat, and I certainly can see this working with it. Um, but yeah, it's a very versatile wine. Um, you want to look for when I meant punky risotto. You want to look for things that got a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of texture. And I think that you find those two things in the wine: sweetness and texture. Well, chaps, I have to congratulate you because as per tradition in these cases, we've had a lot of wines that have sort of subverted and, well, debunked my sort of stereotypes or my preconceived ideas about certain Spanish wines. The Chacolí that wasn't fizzy in any way. We've had the Rioja that was very tannic and it was a sort of bluish colour and and the sherry that wasn't a sherry and then this fantastic Sierra de Gredos which as we talked about last year is a, a region that until pretty recently Angus no one would even have considered making wine in but again as you always say Greg this just sort of showcases um, a lot of well what in this case Spain has to offer and people wouldn't expect to get from Spanish wine. As you mentioned, Spain is has so much to offer in terms of, you know, and as we hinted at the beginning of the conversation, a lot of new age Spanish winemakers ripping up the rule book, planting different varieties on different soil types, not being afraid to 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 make a different expression that, you know, hasn't been made traditionally is a really good thing. And equally that goes down to blends like the last time the Camino that we had there last just a blending ganacha, abio, you know, you don't see that anywhere else in the world. And I think the certainly the value that's able to offer drinkers is, I, I still believe, one of the best in Europe. You know, you're not going to be able to beat that. And they're wines that sit well at the dinner table as well. They're not just wines that you have a glass of at the bar and don't think anything more about. The flavours still ring, ring through the palate and perpetuate. And there's just so much enjoyment there. You know, and I think we get excited about it a lot of the time. Equally, when you come back to when you see something traditional like the Oscar to be a Grand Reserver, that is, you know, as far as we're concerned, off the charts when you compare it to a lot of other Rioja. I think it over delivers for what it is, but equally, it's such a such a well-made wine. You can put it in the back of the, you know, in your cellar for another ten years, and you'll only profit from that. It really does deliver a lot. As far as all three Grand Tours are concerned, I always say that Spain and the Vuelta is the greatest road trip of all three because um, there's I feel there's more to discover in Spain. There are a lot of these sort of sierras, these um, mountain ranges that kind of appear out of nowhere with unfamiliar names that people, most people outside of Spain would never heard of. And I feel the same way about Spanish wine and you know whether it's the grape varieties or the wine producing regions. So much to discover and so much that people don't know about. Greg, uh, you don't really have any skin in the game because you've got Luciano who looks after Italy, you've got Angus who looks after Spain. Of all three Grand Tours, would Spain be, if, if you're only creating a selection for yourself, is Spain the one where you think you could have the most fun? I think in terms of selection we've got, it questions, 
it questions tradition more than the other two in than France and, and Italy and I think it it really is probably the most progressive of the three tours in terms of the selection and in part I think that's the approach we cho- we choose to take but uh, yeah I mean for me I think there's you know it, Italy and Italy and Spain certainly offer the the most interest for me but because of Spain is a little more progressive I th- and I feel in some cases a little more accessible probably probably the tour I get most excited about you know but Luciano would probably chew my ear off for saying that but uh, <laughs> just, just from a, a practical point of view an economic point of view it, there is the impression that sort of Iberian Peninsula Portugal and Spain offer more bang for the buck than France and Italy nowadays would you go along with that yeah, 100%. I think Spain, it's not only the most exciting country, but also the one that offers best value for money, uh, without a doubt. I think, if you, I think if you take Rioja out of that, yes. You know, I think equally with Italy, you know, if you take Piedmont out of that, then, then you have an argument. But I think at the moment, Spain, I feel, probably even offers better value than Portugal, um, just on the premise that I think there's so much under the radar that it hasn't been recognised and you don't have the supply and demand issues that you necessarily have with other regions, you know, like Burgundy, Alsace, etc. Um, you know, that where those wines, you know, have no, no trouble selling and they're also more susceptible to poor vintages. And I think, you know, certainly in terms of vintage consistency, Spain hasn't had any issues at all. So, and in terms of, and as a result, their production hasn't been been minimised and there's there's still a lot of great value there well Charles I'd love to sit here and taste another 6 or 12 or 18 but that concludes the tasting and that concludes the case for this year terrific job both of you so thank you um, from me and thank you on behalf of the listeners who I'm sure will absolutely relish tasting the 6 crackers that you've come up with this year um, Greg, who's going to win the Vuelta? I'm going to put you on the spot. You don't like this, I know. No, I think this year, this year's a hard call. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you you know who's riding the Vuelta? I'll give you a name. Uh, Primoz Roglic has won the last say, three. Uh, Roglic is hard to go past. We don't know if he's riding yet. No, you know, he's still injured off the sure, tour. Really, and you know, definitely, yeah. I think, I think it's he, he didn't do so well in the tour. I think we can see him coming back for this. Quintana, is he going to have a say? Depends on the mountain stages. I haven't had a close look. Angus, maybe I'll ask you an easier question. Which wine is going to go down best of the six that we've chosen? Um, I'm going to go for Ultrella from the Mencia from Raúl Pérez in El Bierzo. Um, and taking this opportunity to thank you, Daniel. It's been an absolutely joy and pleasure to put this case together and champion those uh, great winemakers. Our job is very easy. <laughs> well thank you both and well we will reconvene Greg you and I will be back for the Giro next year but um, certainly Angus will see you again before next year's webinar and who is this guy? we didn't know anything funky today no no, no, I mean, funky as in we didn't have any natural. There was no, 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 no. no. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but that he doesn't add anything, he doesn't need no. to add, but you were, as you were saying, and then. This is <laughs>
The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.